Hello, welcome to the Bible Study Tutor. My name is Jessica Hutton, the founder of the Bible Study Tutor and host of the Bible Study Tutor podcast. Today we are continuing our one year Bible study with the Gospel according to Mark and today we're in chapter 8. In the opening verse, Mark sets the scene by describing a large crowd that had gathered around Jesus for three days. His fame grew exponentially and large crowds often gathered around him to hear his teachings and to either witness or experience his miracles. Now because they had been with him for so long in a deserted area and lived far away, Jesus was moved with compassion to feed them because he didn't want any of them to faint on the way home. As before, the disciples asked Jesus how he intended to feed so many people, especially because they were in a desolate place. Now if you're like me, their question likely confounds you because we know that they had just witnessed Jesus miraculously feeding a crowd of more than 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. So how did they have the audacity to ask how he would do it again? Well, although it is highly unlikely, the disciples may have posed the question because they forgot about the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Another possibility is that the disciples recognized their inability to provide for the people, especially because they were in a desolate place and there was no place to get food even if they wanted to. Accordingly, they may have turned to Jesus to see how he would provide for the people. Still another option is that the disciples were focused on the circumstances and rather than remembering Jesus' previous miracles and trusting in his ability to provide regardless of such circumstances, they struggled to see the broader implications of Jesus' power and provision. This is the most likely option as Mark consistently portrays the disciples' slowness in understanding Jesus' teachings and miracles. Thus, their question demonstrates their slowness to see Jesus clearly. That this is the point the author is making in the chapter will become evident as we continue reading the text. Despite the disciples' slowness to perceive and understand, Jesus, as he had before, asked them to look at what was available because he was setting them up for another miracle. Now, it would be easy to breeze through the account of Jesus feeding the 4,000 because it's such a familiar story. However, I want us to pause so that we can take a closer look at what Mark aims to convey in the text. To do that, we need to work backward and review Mark chapter 7. In Mark 7, the author provides clues that Jesus had extended his ministry to the Gentiles. For us, the clues are subtle, if not altogether difficult to recognize. However, Mark's original audience, which primarily consisted of Romans, that is Gentiles, would have likely understood and appreciated the message being conveyed. So what are those clues? First, having documented Jesus' description of true defilement, Mark inserts an editorial note to inform his Gentile readers that Jesus had declared all foods clean something that would have been greatly significant to them as they did not have a kosher diet that their Jewish counterparts had. See 7.19. Second, in Mark 7.24-30, the author shows Jesus going to the region of Tyre and Sidon, a Gentile region that was known to be antagonistic to the Jews and where the people are known to be deeply entrenched in paganism. Yet Jesus didn't just stop by, nor did he intend to pass through Tyre and Sidon, but he had gone there to retreat. James Edwards explains that the Messiah would have been expected to expel and subdue the Gentiles, not to visit and embrace them. Still, contrary to the people's expectations, Jesus went there to rest, 
but his rest was short-lived. Because third, Mark reveals Jesus' encounter with a Gentile, a Syrophoenician woman who had asked Jesus to heal her daughter, who was possessed by a demon. In response, Jesus informed her that his priority was to minister to his own people, the Jews, and then, after they had been fed, he could feed the Gentiles. Then, in response to her witty demonstration of faith, Jesus granted the woman's request. Her daughter was healed. Fourth, in Mark 7:31 to 37, Jesus returned to the region of the Decapolis, which is on the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee, where he previously encountered the, the Gerasene demoniac. There, Jesus healed a man who was deaf and mute. Now, those four literary clues prepare the reader for what Mark presents in chapter 8, which chronicles Jesus feeding the 4,000 and presents a turning point in Jesus' ministry. Chapter 6 chronicles the time when Jesus fed the 5,000, and after the people had their field, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. Mark was offering a literary clue that revealed the significance of the disciples picking up those 12 baskets. The number 12 signifies the 12 tribes of Israel, thus indicating that Jesus was providing bread to the people of Israel. Jesus continually multiplied the bread as he handed it to each of his disciples to distribute to the people who were neatly arranged into groups. This act symbolized that Jesus' disciples would minister to the Jews, offering to the Jews everything that Christ had given them. Expounding on the symbolical significance of the event, Joel Williams writes, The type of basket mentioned in Mark 6.43 was distinguishable from other baskets, not by its size, it could be various sizes, but by its association with the Jewish people. Mark's mention of Jewish baskets fits the context of this miraculous feeding since it apparently took place on the side of the Sea of Galilee with a predominantly Jewish population in contrast to the feeding of the 4,000, which took place on the side of the Sea of Galilee with a predominantly Gentile population. Now in Mark 8, 1 through 10, Jesus feeds the 4,000. The account has many similarities with the feeding narrative in Mark 6. Still, there are some significant contrasts worth noting. Mark 6, 30-44 recounts the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 set in the context of the disciples' return from their missionary journey. The author aimed to demonstrate that Jesus had raised up disciples so that he could send them out to minister to the Jews. That the feeding took place on the predominantly Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee and that Jesus directed the disciples to sit the people down in groups of hundreds and fifties is also significant as it draws parallels with God's provision of manna in the wilderness during Moses' time, reinforcing Jesus' identity as the new and better Moses. You can watch my Bible studies on Matthew to learn more about that. And it symbolized the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel. Additionally, as stated earlier, the 12 baskets of leftovers signify the 12 tribes of Israel, thus indicating that Jesus and his disciples were ministering to the Jews. In contrast, Mark 8, 1-10 presents the feeding of the 4,000 in Gentile territory, specifically the region of the Decapolis. This setting emphasizes Jesus' mission to the Gentiles and foreshadows the inclusive nature of God's kingdom, expanding beyond the confines of Israel. The mention of a desolate place underscores the sufficiency of Jesus' provision even in seemingly barren or spiritually desolate places. 
The seven baskets of leftovers symbolize completeness and perfection, possibly signifying the fulfillment of Jesus' ministry as evidenced by the inclusion of Jews and Gentiles. Also, the variations in details, such as the number of baskets and the locations of the feeding, reveal that Jesus had always intended to commission his disciples to reach the Jews and the Gentiles with the gospel. Together, these passages foreshadow the universal salvation and inclusion of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue in God's kingdom through Jesus Christ, highlighting the richness and inclusivity of Jesus' ministry. As was promised to Abraham long, long ago, these narratives reveal how God is fulfilling his promise to bless all nations through his people. Next, Mark highlights an encounter that Jesus had with the Pharisees who came to argue with him and demand a sign from him in order to test him. They, like the disciples, had witnessed Jesus do many miracles. So why on earth did they approach him to command a sign? And how could Jesus doing any sign be a test? Well, having already accused him of doing miracles by the power of Beelzebul, or Satan, they now hope to discredit him by asking him to do an irrefutable, divinely authorized sign from heaven, which they were confident he could not do because they did not believe or want to believe that he was from God. That is, the messianic figure that he claimed to be. John Grasmick explains, in the Old Testament, a sign was not so much a demonstration of power as an evidence that an utterance or action was authentic and trustworthy. The Pharisees did not demand a spectacular miracle, but that Jesus give unmistakable proof that he and his mission were authorized by God. They believed quite the opposite. The Pharisees' demand for a sign reflects their desire for tangible, undeniable evidence that conforms to their expectations. They seek a sign according to their own terms, one that fits their preconceived notions of what the Messiah should be and do. Their demand is not rooted in genuine faith or openness to God's revelation, but in skepticism and self-interest. The Pharisees' request a sign also reflects the spiritual blindness and opposition to Jesus' ministry. Despite witnessing undeniable evidence of his power and authority, they refuse to acknowledge him as the Son of God and the promised Messiah. Their demand for a sign is driven by their refusal to accept Jesus' claims and teachings. Exasperated with them, Jesus emphatically denies their request. The Gospel of Matthew provides more details on the encounter, stating that no sign would be given to the generation except that of Jonah. He was revealing that his death and resurrection from the dead would be the great and irrefutable sign from heaven that they sought. However, in Mark's abbreviated, albeit powerful account, Jesus stated something along the lines of, I'd sooner die than give this unbelieving generation a sign. Then Jesus dropped the mic and immediately left the Pharisees behind, both literally and figuratively, departing on a boat with his disciples. Jesus' declaration and departure reflects his recognition of the Pharisees' unbelief and their unwillingness to accept him regardless of the evidence presented. He was not in the business of trying to prove who he was by performing miracles on demand, as his miracles served as evidence of who he was to those who believed. Meanwhile, on the boat, the disciples realized that they had forgotten bread and only had one loaf on the boat. Jesus then seized the opportunity to teach his disciples using leaven as a metaphor. He cautioned the disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. 
Now Matthew records the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, so take note of that. Jesus used the metaphor of the leaven to symbolize the Pharisees and Herod's corruptive influence that results in unbelief. The Pharisees had heard Jesus' teaching and witnessed many miracles that authenticated his ministry, yet they remained committed to unbelief and disdain for Jesus. Meanwhile, Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, had heard and enjoyed the preaching of John the Baptist. Yet, despite his admiration for John, he had John beheaded on behalf of Herodias. In addition, the disciples preached to Herod about Jesus, yet when Jesus' fame spread, he thought Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected from the dead instead of believing that Jesus was the Messiah about whom the disciples preached. Thus, in this context, the yeast refers to a gradual increase of unbelief. This attitude had affected the whole nation of Israel and Jesus warned his disciples against it. In contrast, he called them to faith and understanding without signs. The disciples misunderstand Jesus, thinking that he was addressing their failure to bring bread. Then Jesus rebuked them for their hardness of heart. Having eyes and ears, they neither saw nor heard him clearly and failed to perceive the reality of who Jesus was. Remarking on the grave importance of seeing and understanding, James Edwards writes, Failure to understand leads to hardness of heart. The plea for understanding is a reminder that faith is not separate from understanding, but possible only through understanding. The passage is a good apology for a proper understanding of Christian education. If intellectual and spiritual blindness leads to hardness of heart, blind faith must inevitably lead there as well. The faith for which Jesus appeals is a faith born of understanding and insight. The disciples are not chastised for not believing, but for not seeing and understanding. To drive home the point and offer the readers hope for the disciples' eventual revelation, Mark writes about a time when Jesus healed a blind man at Bethsaida. Upon laying hands on the man the first time, the man was unable to see clearly. Yet the second time Jesus touched him, the man's sight was fully restored and he saw everything clearly. This narrative, which seems to have random placement in this chapter as is common in the Gospel of Mark, signifies the process by which the disciples and future believers arrive at a clear revelation of who Christ is. And it is at this point in the chapter when Mark's whole Gospel narrative begins to shift. Edwards explains the shift quite nicely. This story brings to us the continental divide of Mark's narrative. By the gradual healing of the blind man, Jesus shows how the disciples, in particular, may come to faith. Like the blind man, the disciples who have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear can also be made to see and hear. But it will not happen on their own. The ability to see, both physically and spiritually, is a gift of God, not of human ability. We hear nothing of the man's faith or behavior in the present story. There is no hint that as his faith grew, his healing progressed. His healing from failed sight to partial sight to complete sight comes solely from the repeated touch of Jesus. His healing exemplifies the situation of the disciples who move through the same through stages in Mark from non-understanding to misunderstanding to complete understanding. The first healing touch for them will come on the road to Caesarea Philippi in 827 when Peter declares that Jesus is Messiah. The disciples will no longer be blind, but their vision will remain imperfect and blurred, for they do not understand the, the meaning of the Messiahship. 
Only at the cross and resurrection will they, like the man at Bethsaida, see everything clearly. End quote. In the next section of the chapter, verses 27 through 30, Jesus asked the disciples who had trouble seeing, hearing, and understanding how people identified him. Having offered several answers to Jesus, there was one that captured Jesus' attention and foreshadowed the disciples' growing understanding of Jesus' identity. Peter declared, you are the Christ. Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah, and both words mean anointed one. You may have noticed the contrast between Mark and Matthew's depiction of Peter's confession. Whereas in Mark, the author writes about Jesus affirming Peter, Mark leaves the affirmation out. Instead, he shows Jesus directing the disciples to tell no one about this. Mark aimed to demonstrate that this revelation was only partial, and Peter, along with the other disciples, had more to see, if you will, before they would have a clear revelation of what it meant for Jesus to be the Christ. Meanwhile, Jesus helps them out by telling them that the Son of Man must suffer and be killed, but that he would rise again. Peter, not seeing clearly, and like his Jewish counterparts who also waited for the promised Messiah, couldn't fathom the Christ going through such things, so he pulled Jesus aside to rebuke him for such talk. In response, Jesus rebuked Peter for his emphasis on the concerns of man rather than God's. Jesus exclaimed, get behind me, Satan, to demonstrate the gravity of opposing God's will, especially if in doing so, one tips another to do the same, thus being a hindrance or stumbling block to them. Evidently, Peter did not understand that the Messiah had to come to be a suffering servant as this would have contradicted the Jewish view of how the Messiah would be. This interaction demonstrates the stark difference between human understanding and God's purpose and sovereignty. It also implicates us to be in alignment with God's will, even if it challenges our expectations of how we think things should be. Now, continuing his thought, Jesus, Jesus explained that anyone who follows him must deny themselves and take up their crosses, as opposed to setting their minds on the things of man instead of God. Taking up one's cross would have been a graphic metaphor to the disciples. It symbolized forsaking one's own will for the will of God, no matter the cost. And as it pertains to the cross, that cost was death. To value one's life over God's will is to lose everything. And losing everything and dying to oneself for God's sake is to gain true life in Christ. The chapter ends with Jesus turning to the crowd and explaining, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels would save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I chose the final verses of Mark 8 as the verse of the week. And here is my prayer. Lord, grant us the strength to deny ourselves take up our crosses and follow you faithfully, knowing that in losing our lives for your sake in the Gospels, we find true salvation and purpose. As we journey with you, help us to trust in your promise that you who began a good work in us will keep perfecting us until the day Jesus the Anointed, our liberating King, returns to redeem the world. Amen. And that is Mark chapter 8.